0: So many people hate their own response to the following question. So what does your company actually do? Because in this moment, my friend, you have three options, okay? Number one, pitch, slap your prospect. Number two, fumble your way through a long-winded response. And number three, deliver a punchy elevator story that sparks intrigue. Now, if you're nodding your head at number three, but you're like, hold up, I don't even know where to begin, then, hey, Don't worry. I've got your back. All right. Head on down to www.theravirajani.com forward slash your elevator story to unlock your very own free elevator story script, template and guide. Welcome to the Influential Communicator Podcast, where my mission is to help B2B salespeople sell more by becoming authentic storytellers and impactful communicators without suppressing who they truly are or their values. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani, and without further wait, let's get into it. Sell with your buyers, not to them. Those are the exact words that are plastered over Nate Nasrallah's LinkedIn profile. Now, from the context that I do have on Nate, all what I can say is that he's a dude who believes in a research-driven approach to enterprise selling, right? And all whilst communicating in a way that's filled with transparency, precision, and intention. Now, as the founder of Fluent, he actually helps enterprise sellers create and sell with a committed champion for every deal in their pipeline. And I knew I wanted to have Nate on for so long now. We've literally made it happen because I pinned him down just for you, all right, to talk to us about His three step roadmap for communicating like a rock star in your next discovery call. Nate, what's good, brother? Welcome to the show. Ravi, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Do you say that to every host, Nate? Is this your line? Are you hitting me with a line? (laughs) I I say it to everybody, but there are certain levels. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like you,
1: you feel it differently. And with Ravi, I'm like, I'm walking in at like a nine, nine and a half. Maybe we'll get to 10. So the anticipation
0: is far higher. I like what you did there. You didn't build me up to a tent because now I'm feeling, well, what do I need to do to get Nate to a tent? So I <laughs> like how you, you flipped the script on me then brother. But listen, man, you know you've been in a position where you've founded products that you sell and you've also built teams that go out and sell. What do you prefer in this season of your life?
1: Well, in this season of my life, I really like building products. And it was part of how I got kind of started on my current chapter as I was feeling the itch when I was trying to solve a problem for my prior sales team. We were selling into kind of large Fortune 500. We we would sell to their innovation teams. And Mm. I was trying to buy a product to solve our problem, which is we would lose deals when we weren't in the room. So we couldn't shape the message that our champions, the story that our champions would tell. And everything out there was so focused on the sales rep and the sales meeting. So that's when that old kind of product brain kicked in again. And I was like, well, if I, if I can't buy it, let's go see if we can build it. And, you know, it kind of goes back and forth a little bit, seasons of my career. But right now I'm really enjoying I'm enjoying the kind of creative design outlet that the product work gives me.
0: Well, I think it would have been pretty bad if you had said, Rav, in this season of my life, I'm really looking forward to quitting what I'm doing and getting back to leading teams, right? That would have been pretty bad, man. So I'm glad. I'm glad. And you know, when it comes to your origin story, what's one part of your story that you believe the audience need to know to get a better understanding of who Nate is today?
1: Well, there are a couple different ones, but I'll say one big element or big chapter of my story was the, so the first company that I founded, we sold into nonprofits, fundraising software. Most people think nonprofit, they think no profit, but by market size in just the US alone, there are 1.2 million nonprofits that raise 400 billion with a B dollars every single year and they need software to do it. So it's a much larger market, perfect place to play. But the thing about selling into nonprofits is two things. One, everything is highly emotional and narrative-driven. The typical approach to calculating ROI or whatnot, it doesn't, it, it really doesn't matter. When you're working with bleeding heart, passionate people. Number two is that most major purchases are going to happen at a board meeting, which means that even if you're talking to the CEO or an executive director, they literally can't make a decision. And sales reps will never be in a board meeting when a decision is going down. And so I didn't know it, but you know, as far back as like 2013, 2014, some of the seeds for what I'm building now were planted going into how do we help champions when a rep isn't in the room, create a very clear storyline and a compelling message to get everybody on board with moving forward. So that I would say was a very formative season, number one, and then number two over the years, I've just written books as just kind of a fun thing. And it it kind of started. There was one season of life where my company was acquired and I was getting married. We were moving across the country. All of this was like the perfect storm in life. And I should have been in therapy at the time. I was too proud to admit it. Now I I go to therapy every month and it's amazing. But at the time, I just kind of turned to writing as an outlet to try to process what I was learning and to straighten out and clarify, you know, all of the tangled, twisted thoughts in my own mind. And pretty soon I fell in love with the art of writing as discovering and realizing what I actually think about a topic or a subject. And that's the second piece that I'll say is a lot of what we're doing now is helping any rep working on complex type deals, create the written type of content to guide their champions because their writing can be in the room when they can't be. So those two kind of pieces, I guess, of my last last decade
0: Are coming out just in my work every day now, dude. What I love about you is your focus on not just the professional side but also the personal side. Because I get the feeling that you're the type of dude that knows that the more you grow personally, you know, the more you grow professionally. So, in your words, you said the word. Well, actually, in your word of twisted, you mentioned Mm -hmm. about a minute ago. What was one thing which you believed to have been a twisted thought back then, which is secretly serving you today? So one of
1: the things that I believed, you know, long time ago was that just because I could do anything, I should do everything. And it created this immense Mm. amount of pressure on me. I always wanted to be first, the guy who was capable, who came through. Mm. And what I realized, particularly with the teams that I was leading, I felt like if I showed any type of crack, you know, or a chink in the armor, then who am I? Can I actually lead? And I remember I was, I was reading this book by a guy named Donald Miller. It was called Scary Close. And he had this quote where he talked about our flaws are the grooves that bind us together because grace, love, all of the element of human relationships can't stick to a perfect exterior. You need those grooves and flaws to bind us together. And so that's when I started to realize like with my team in a conversation with a prospect talking about like, look, this is really not going right. This may, in fact, change your mind about whether or not this is worth doing together. I just want to lay that out there and let you know what I'm feeling. How do you feel about that? It was this moment of like, one, people began to trust the message. Two, they began to come alongside you and be like, well, let's figure it out together. You know, let's work through it. And then three, it just opened up the, a world of new ideas that in my own head I had totally missed because I only have one perspective, I have one point of view so one that was one thing that i you know i had to kind of work through and then over time i've realized like okay there's actually a much better way to think about the idea of you know the superman who can do it all shows up shows up right on point in every scenario
0: i love that brother you know a mentor of mine she taught me that your triggers are your mirrors and Mm. that everything that we're getting triggered by are areas for growth and healing. And it's really interesting when I look at certain triggers of my past, which I may have healed, Mm. but they often still rear their ugly head, right? They're not gone forever. Sometimes they still pop up to actually say, hold on, have you learned this lesson? So as a founder now versus a leader of an actual sales team as an employee, how does that reveal itself in the role as a founder? (laughs)
1: Being a founder is just all about failing constantly, making the wrong decisions, and then realizing that you just have to continue to move forward and to do it Mm. with a resilient and a clear mind. Because the definition of a founder is that your job is a little bit of everything, which Mm. again, means that you cannot be good at everything you're asked to do. Things like, for example, this past week, we were just talking about this I had part of our company's cash sitting in a in an account with Silicon Valley Bank above the 250k FDIC limit. And in my mind, like I'm not thinking like a CFO of like of course I should break that up into a different account below that 250k threshold. And so for a while I was like, well, shoot, I couldn't get the money out. I'm going to have to admit that I failed in managing and stewarding this chunk of cash from our investors. And I'm going to figure out how do we creatively move forward? Now, part of why I say dealing with that, and to your point of like the personal development is also a piece to the professional development. One of the, the points that my therapist made to me a little while ago was, Nate, that's not an actual problem. There are two types of problems. There are math problems and there's drama. And there was one point where I was bringing up a scenario like this, talking about, about cash And he was like, but that's not an actual problem. That's just drama. And so his point is that a true problem always has a solution. There is something that you can do to move forward. And in this example, the drama is, I'm a horrible founder. I made a huge mistake, mismanaging money. I'm never going to recover from this. And now we have X amount of less dollars in order to hit really big goals. That's so challenging and stressful all of that is drama. There is storyline or narrative that we build for ourselves that becomes a mental barrier that we've essentially manufactured. As opposed to his point is the math problem is, look, you have X amount of less input to grow the same output. What's the path? What's the plan? And that is such a hard thing. And as it relates to selling, working with buyers, keeping a deal on track, you have to be able to very clearly differentiate a math problem from drama that either one you may create inside of the deal. I haven't heard from them. What's going on? Do they hate this deal? Am I going to miss quota? So on that's drama. It's not an actual problem. The math inside of it is something that is more straightforward and you can actually break down and help a champion navigate because you bet there are all sorts of storylines that other members of the buying team have invented in their mind that could be blocking a deal as well.
0: Dude, I just want to acknowledge you for a second for something really subtle which I think you know because I've told you this offline, but the reason why I think you're such a charismatic individual is because of not just your ability to focus on connection and break things down in a really snackable way for people, but your ability to lead with vulnerability and in in an authentic way, meaning mm. some people will be vulnerable because they are weaponizing their story, right? But yours in the past three minutes has been from a place of just just like you, you could really see from the tone, from the energy, from the way it was framed that you're just being open about where you are. And there's so much beauty in that, man. And also, I think so many people can connect with that. And I really think that is one of the core ingredients of charisma. So dude, I just want to acknowledge you for that because I've spoken with so many guests about this previously, about what charisma really means. And I'm fascinated by it. I really love looking at this stuff. And I think there's a big misconception out there on what it is and dude, I think you embody it. So Mm. yeah, appreciate you, man. But on that problem of drama, sorry, on that topic of drama versus problems, How do you actually rather in the face of realizing that your money may be gone forever, quarter of a million plus gone, how quickly did it take you to realize this is drama versus a real problem? And then how quickly did it take you to process it so you can come up with a solution from a calm nervous system versus one which is completely, you know what I mean? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, in this moment, in this scenario, it was probably about three or four minutes. At first, it was like a little bit of mild panic, scrambling to say, Oh my gosh, how am I going to tell John, my co founder? What's he going to think? By the way, he was getting ready to get on a plane and go on vacation with his family. I'm like, Am I going to totally ruin the personal time? And because I have screwed up so many communications in the past, And I've done hours and hours of therapy. (laughs) That's the value of it is you can very quickly realize and separate. I mean, good therapy just gives you a mental toolkit, a series of mental models to say, what situation am I in? What type of framework relates to this situation? Okay, how might I apply that framework to the situation? And so pretty quickly, I move to a place of just clarity to say, how do we execute in light of what's going on? what do i need to communicate to other investors to team members and what do i need to do to make sure that the cash that we do have is safe secure are there other things that we need to do so because i could you know fall back on that math problem versus drama framework it was far faster than you know if this scenario had happened 2 years ago 3 years ago <laughs> i'd be telling you a very different story
0: That's great, man. That's great that you are able to apply that in three to four minutes. That's fast. That's really, really fast, man. And I suppose when it comes to the narrative, often that sellers have in their minds about—let me give an example about things like I'm not Nate, so that means I'm not a good enterprise seller. I'm not a good presenter like X, so I'm not Y. I'm not a good negotiator, so X, Y, Z. How does somebody apply your framework to deciphering whether the story that they're telling themselves is in fact true or false? Mm -hmm.
1: So I would say first, reframe it from asking who are you to who are you becoming? If you look at the Mm. progression of yourself day over day, Are you moving in the right direction? So if you would like to become a more effective storyteller, then the question is day over day over day, are you becoming a better storyteller? And that, to answer that, you have to go back to the math problem, right? How do I measure my level of story effectiveness today? Do I have people leaning in on a Zoom call or checking their email? Okay, tomorrow when I run another group conversation, can I get more heads looking at the screen and leaning in? And In order to do that, what are the ingredients or the recipe to a really engaging storyline? How might I weave in something tomorrow that I left out yesterday? And that's the difference between saying, ah, you know, I'm not a natural born storyteller. I'm more introverted again, which is fine. The question though, is who are you
0: becoming? Oh, I love that, bro. I love that, man. I love that. So speaking of the storyline and the ingredients, you know, one of the things that I think you are fantastic at, I think is one of your superpowers is really breaking down different stages of the sales process for enterprise sellers and creating methodologies outside of what we see today in like, medic, spin or whatever, in a way that's easy to implement regardless of what belief system or methodology that people subscribe to. So let's dig deep man into the storyline of a discovery call because as you and I said offline right it is it is a it is one big storyline it is one big presentation when it comes to a discovery call. So earlier on LinkedIn you spoke about your three stage roadmap for effective discovery calls. Now stage 1 was uncovering the current state. Stage 2 was building a path and understanding the buying process. And stage three was all about painting a picture of the future payoff. So Nate, here's what I'd like to do, brother. Let's dig deep into each stage and give people an idea how to handle each stage, qualify when success has been achieved so they can get to the promised land of booking that demo. Mm -hmm. So for stage one, how does somebody frame a high cost, high priority problem? How do they frame it and how do they extract it from their prospect? There are a couple different pieces to it in, in what
1: I'll say just briefly by way of this overall roadmap. So if you haven't seen the visual of the roadmap, think about three pieces. Every single buyer is trying to travel from a problem where they are today to a payoff where they want to go tomorrow. There's going to be some type of pathway that you build in between there. And fundamentally, story is at the heart of this because if you look at for example, like the main meta-narrative that's present in every single story ever, like Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, what happens? It's a character who wants something. They see some type of visual or payoff, but along the way, they hit some blockers, you know, problems, and they have to figure out how to navigate alongside of that. So story is very woven into this, but you come back to where people are today, the problem, The goal that you just recap very nicely, finding and framing a high-cost, high-priority problem, there's a couple different pieces to it. One, a lot of people can uncover pain points and say, aha, I discovered a problem. However, framing a problem is beginning to shape the way somebody thinks about that problem to align with a solution. So for example, there's a pretty fascinating study that was done about a decade ago, in the state of New York and New York city. And they asked two groups of people, what they thought about a specific crime. Now, group a, they described that crime in terms of a beast that needed to be tamed. Whereas with a second group, they talked about it as a virus infecting the community. Now, when they went back again, that's how they framed the problem, the crime. When they went back to group a and they said, Hey, what's the right solution here? How do you think you want to go about solving this? They said, more policing. Second group, they said, hey, how should we solve this? They said, more education. And so the way in which you've defined or framed the problem begins to set up the journey in potentially two very different directions. And so it's something that a lot of sellers miss the opportunity to do is the problem isn't just an issue. It is the way in which the buyer thinks about that issue. And then the last piece that I'll say here is that other piece, high priority. This is really important because when you are working with some type of high level enterprise deal where you're going to need some type of executive alignment and involvement, any type of issue that is not immediately blocking a priority that executive has already sold on isn't a problem. It's just a distraction. So prioritizing problems, stack ranking them to align with what an executive cares about and appropriately framing them so that you're setting up that path to go on a journey together in the right direction. Those are pretty pretty big steps on that first piece of the roadmap
0: problems. Cut, pause, or whatever we need to say for me to get your attention because before we get back to the show, I have some breaking news. Okay, listen, ladies and gents, feature selling is dead. Story selling is alive because if you really want to build trust, stand out, and close more deals in a recession, then you need to try something new so you can drive your company to a world of efficiency and profitability. And that's exactly why I've opened up many slots this year for different companies to partner with me for implementing my story selling framework inside of their sales process. Now, the outcomes are all the good stuff. I'm talking about increasing average order value, collapsing time inside of your sales cycle and driving win rates. But more importantly, transforming your team to sell in a way that really focuses on human connection. And hey, that's what I'm all about. So if you're nodding your head right now, then head on down to www.theravirajani.com forward slash contact to book your complimentary discovery call to see if there's alignment. And hey, if there is, great. And if there's not, that's cool too. i see you on the other side. So if somebody's extracting the pain, they've identified the underlying root cause and they've been given confirmation that, yeah, that's, that's, we're on the right lines. That is the root cause. How can somebody frame the narrative in a way that is conducive to not ushering people towards their solution? but ushering them towards just a great outcome because I often feel like that's what happens. Meaning if a doctor was mm-hmm. prescribing me medicine that he was making commission or she was making commission on, I'd be like, come on, man. Like, just, uh-huh. like, just What do I actually need? So how can mm-hmm. you diagnose and frame the narrative in a way that positions you as a trusted advisor? Yeah.
1: So the best way to do that is to tap into what somebody already believes to be true based on their past experience. So for example, you may say something like, hey, based on anything that you've experimented with, tried, have you come across anything that you believe must be true about the way in which we go about solving this? And you just have a conversation about that. It's like if somebody comes in and recommends PT to you, you have a, a bum knee, you've been running a lot and they're like, you know, you just need to do some stretching, some different types of movement therapy And if you're there saying like, hey, look, I've tried this for the last 12 months. There's been zero improvement. I'm here to talk about alternatives. That's really helpful for you to know before you go on talking all about the benefits of PT.
0: Mm, Okay. Interesting. Interesting. And this reminds me of also the idea, which was reinforced by a post by Kevin Dorsey, the other, I think it was like the other week, but it was the idea if someone tells you that their problem is... They need to go from two to three million dollars in ARR, right? Mm-hmm. They, they say we need to go from two to three million dollars, but it's not really the leap of that million dollars. It's clearly, okay, so there's a lack of growth right now. It's like, fr- it's framing what there's a lack of, because there is a lack of something, right? Mm-hmm. Which is preventing. The internal narrative from shifting. So I, th- I think that's quite an interesting part of this part of the process, which is framing that narrative, which I wanted to add here. What do you think about that, Nate?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll build on that and I'll say maybe one other spin on it that you could ask is, is there something about this issue going from two to 3 million in ARR that yeah. other people you've explained it to just don't seem to understand? And mm. what you may hear back from the buyer is something along the lines of you know, the immediate problem today, two to 3 million Like We can do that, stacking up more wins in our existing market, but what I'm really nervous about is that we'll do that in a way that doesn't help us create the more exponential leap from 3 million to 10 million. And I know as soon as we hit that 3 million, next year, goals are going to grow even faster. So can we get some of those early wins in much larger accounts in a different market segment where we could then tap some upsells to drive our revenue in the future? It's like, oh, great. Thanks for breaking that down for me. Now we can go about this two to three million problem Mm. in a very different way than just getting you revenue. We have to go about this in a far more strategic way.
0: Which goes back to that incident that happened with Silicon Valley Bank, which Created the opportunity for you to frame it differently and think about the solution and forward Mm -hmm. steps in a different way, which I think we were talking about offline. I don't think that conversation was online, but you get what I mean. So that's dope, bro. So, okay, so then if you're building a path to stage two, how does a seller do that without friction? Meaning, do they have to get agreement from the prospect? on this is a problem that they believe exists, they know the magnitude of it, and they actually want it solved? Like, When can they move to stage two? Mm -hmm. So the best time to move to stage two, and there's some nuance
1: here, but the best time to move to stage two is once there's consensus on the problem. Because when you're working with a buying team of 12, 15, 20 plus people, different people may not actually see that issue as a problem, number one. Two, they may have a different opinion of what's actually causing or driving that problem. And if you don't have people on the same page as it relates to the problem, good luck getting them on board with a solution. However, that said, here's some nuance. Typically within a larger buying team, contact stages aren't going to line up with the deal stage. Meaning you could have a champion or two or three who are so far ahead thinking about Solving that problem with you than somebody who is from a a different team, but is a stakeholder and just came into the deal. And they're back at this like, so what's the problem that we're talking about here? So that said, you may be working with your champion going further down the process. And this is kind of that next piece where you're getting into. And I think your question here was like, how do we remove some of the friction from this process? Like, what's the right way to go about building the pathway? And that's where you could be asking you know, your champion questions like, hey, when you're thinking about a new project idea and you want to get other people on board, you know, walk me through how you share or introduce that. Is there some type of process that you guys typically use as a team to evaluate new project ideas? And then understanding that helps you see how you might mirror what already works inside of the buying team versus saying, hey, let's do it my way.
0: What about a scenario where say you've got two people on the call? Okay, now both of them are influencers versus decision makers. Mm -hmm. Now, one of them is like so open with you. They're like, yeah, Nate, this is the problem, blah, 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 blah. You know, you've really built great rapport with them, but the other person is holding back because they know if they talk about the problem, it may reflect poorly on them and they may be worried about losing their job or whatever. So there's resistance. They're not opening up to you, but you can see the problem clearly, but you Mm -hmm. need their buy-in to move to stage two then what? What would Nate do in that scenario?
1: Yeah. So this is what you're talking about. There's a cognitive bias. It's called the ostrich effect. And it's where we tend to bury problems. Think about an ostrich. They bury their head in the sand because it is more painful to admit there's a problem if we're personally accountable for it than to bring it out into the open and move forward. And Mm. so part of the kind of process that we would use there is to try to unpack some of the environment or surrounding cause to help them see like, oh, okay, 100% of this isn't on my shoulders. Like get them breathing a little easier. And it's like, hey, look, we've seen this in some other companies, very similar. And over time, what we began to realize is like some of these pieces just were not preventable. It would have been very hard to avoid this. And here's why. So you open up just a little bit of room. You kind of decrease that ostrich effect. So they're willing to kind of pick their heads up a little bit. Then the next thing that you begin to do is the more you can begin to label or call some of that emotion out and put it out into the open. Once you release that, you can replace it with a positive emotion. So for example, so let's say customer support, there's a massive backlog of tickets. Customer wait times are increasing. Now the CS director, they could have changed that workflow and done something about it. Ultimately, they are personally responsible for how frustrated customers are. However, the negative emotion here that you need to release is this feeling of indispensability. It's like, we have so much going on. We're so busy. We're so frenzied. I feel needed by my team who are always coming to me to troubleshoot problems. So what do you need to do is you need to replace that emotion with something more positive, like value to the business. It's like, Hey, this type of workflow issue is only marginally helpful what would you do if you had the time to think at a little bit more high level about these different types of customer initiatives? You know, you mentioned that executive A is really focused on initiative B. How might you contribute to that if you had some of the bandwidth? And so the more you can call that negative emotion, again, out in the open, release it and replace it with something more positive, then you're freeing up some of the clutter on that pathway to keep the deal
0: moving forward. Beautiful, man. It sounds as like though what I'm hearing as well is being able to observe the problem without judgment gives that person the permission to talk about it freely and look this Mm -hmm. is like coaching therapy anything right you feel freer once you've voiced it and especially you know that you're not being judged which is incredible right so i love it man and i think there's some really great scripts for people to rewind and go back into so let's move on to stage two sorry well we kind of are at stage two right which is knowing the exact moment a seller can now look for the opportunity to guide. So now we're in stage two, we've done that. Now we want to prescribe and we want to guide. What are two to three questions that somebody could ask to ensure that where they're guiding them is to a place which is authentic to them versus what you want for them as a seller?
1: So one of the, and we're in, this is a really good question because it kind of blurs the lines between the two pieces, you know, process or path, and then the last, um, which is payoff. And so something that you, you may ask is, so two different topics in the two different questions here, are the difference between a contact level goal and a company level goal. So first let's start up at the kind of the company level. Are there any certain phrases that in the last all hands or all staff meeting, you heard your team just repeating over and over and over again? And typically people will kind of laugh and be like, oh yeah, like we can't stop talking about North stars. Or I wrote a post on this last week, the discovery engine. Like that's all that I hear about at a leadership level. And what those are, are trigger phrases, phrases that relate to some type of priority leadership is already sold on, and they're trying to get people to move toward. And if you can align yourself with that priority and begin to talk about, okay, let's move in this direction. Then, what you know is that you are helping people move in a way that at a company level has already been prioritized. The question then is what's the personal incentive or link between the company level goal and that specific contact? And so then you may follow it up and say, So then, as it relates to your job, what would a good year look like? Because I understand the value to the company, but like what's keeping you interested in this project? You could also say, Hey, personally, You know, I have certain OKRs that I work toward. Are there any ways in which you measure or evaluate yourself, things that you would like to see happen this year? And understanding both of those pieces is really important because you have to build a bridge between them. If you're just working at the contact level, chances are the deal gets ignored. Nobody at the company level prioritizes it. And, you know, let's be honest, all of us are motivated by our personal stuff, like a company level goal, especially as the company grows. You begin to decouple, like for me, a founder of a very small company, my personal and professional goals are very tightly interlinked and woven, but as you're working with a larger company, those two things are separated more often. And so you need to bridge and come back down to that individual contact level.
0: On that point though, of talking about the things that they're talking about in the boardroom or around the table, let's say if they say, oh yeah, everyone's talking about a tech consolidation and everybody's talking about unit economics over growth. Are you saying that you as a seller should figure out how to authentically and ethically weave that language back into the conversation to make them feel seen, heard, and understood? Or is there something else? Yes,
1: yes. The more you can use and embrace the language that is just used to communicate inside of your target account, the more you will be seen as like, okay, they're one of us. They're using the native Mm. language. The kind of the fancy term for this is coordinating language. And basically, if you go all the way back and you think about Kind of how humanity language has evolved over time using the same type of words signals like, hey, Ravi, you and I were from the same tribe. Like, you're safe here. You're with good people. Let's go a little deeper. And I'll make this like really practical. One of my favorite examples of this is the former CEO of SendGrid, the email API, would say, make the mail move. That was his trigger phrase. Like, every team had to make the mail move. More accounts, sending more email per account more successfully. So if you walked into his office and said, hey, I have a plan that I want to run by you to get some feedback. It's all about making the mail move. What would that signal? He's like, oh, you know, clearly you get it. You're here to help. Let's talk. As opposed to saying you know, something like lead gen to bring in more accounts. It's like, mm, maybe, but if you explicitly tie that back into making the mail move, it's like, okay, you're one of
0: us beautiful story to really emphasize the point and I tell you what brother I love this conversation so much but I'm partly torn and I'll tell you why from a person who looks at storytelling frameworks myself and for you who really loves frameworks as well sometimes I worry and I worry about the following that methodologies and frameworks are not substitutes for doing the inner work. So you feel comfortable and present to have a human conversation. Mm. So if somebody said to me, okay, next question, given you said tech consolidation, Ravi, how do you feel about, it's like, yeah, they've done what Nate has said, but mm-hmm. it just feels inauthentic. And I just feel like, man, sometimes sometimes strategies and methodologies and frameworks are great, but we need to focus on the human being and their inner narrative before you can create results externally. Do you sometimes feel that or am I alone? You can tell me to shut up, bro. (laughs) Oh
1: yeah. No, most definitely. Most definitely. And it's why one of the more memorable pieces to this project I work on last summer, it was called the Library of Uncommon Sales Practices, where I interviewed a bunch of sales leaders and I said, hey you know, what's the one practice you do that most others don't, but has been really effective for your team. And so Danielle Miller, who's a RVP of revenue over at Gong, she brought me through one of her practices for her team. And it's where you have to go and talk to somebody very close to you who knows you through and through. So for example, think about your wife. Now you have to discover everything about a hobby that your wife really cares about enough that you could go back and give a team a whole presentation on this topic, right? So you've, you've gained a very deep understanding of it, but here's the catch. You have to do it in a way where your wife won't ask you like, why are you asking me all of these questions? <laughs> <laughs>
0: so okay, good. to
1: do this effectively, you have to be very genuine, very authentic. And again, it can't increase this level of resistance of like, you weirdo, why are you asking me all of this? So if you can do that with a significant other, a partner in your life, somebody like that, you know, maybe they really love flowers and gardening. And now you know how to build an entire garden in a variety of different climates. You could teach that to other people, but again, without kind of sending out a red flag of like, you're being really
0: weird today, Robbie. <laughs> I think every team should should be forced to be doing this exercise with that other half. And the first phase is, do you get caught by your partner? The second phase is how good was your presentation? That's gold, brother. There you go. There you go. Yes. You got to be
1: authentic first. And then from there, you can be more effective in the amount of detail and depth that you
0: uncover. I love it, bro. I love it, man. I love it. So I suppose that segues beautifully into the final segment, which is about explaining the payoff, right? And I suppose this leads me to the question of, I think a lot of the time as human beings, we don't know what we want. So how can you explain the right payoff, which aligns deeply to, they, to what they need versus what they think they want? Mm. So this is the thing behind the thing. And typically what
1: you can do is try to label the very obvious benefit to take it off the table and then go a bit deeper. So for example, it's like, Ravi, obviously you would love to have more listeners tuning into the podcast every single week. But I mean, beyond the obvious, what would a more successful podcast enable you to do that you can't do today? And so let's say, Mm. you know, I sell Riverside, the platform that we're recording on or something, you know, to help you distribute your podcast. I'm just going to immediately label the product benefit that everybody says that we want, and I'll go deeper. That is the thing behind the thing, and that's what creates the level of excitement and sustains the level of urgency throughout a really long sales cycle.
0: How beautiful is it when somebody asks you a question that you've never been asked before?
1: Hmm. Usually, you have to like pause. You don't know the answer. You have to think about it.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, man. And it's kind of why I don't enjoy giving guests questions beforehand. You know, some mm-hmm. people say, can you send me some questions beforehand? But I often like the, huh, can I think about that for a sec? Because that's where the real conversation lies. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Totally. I
1: mean, think about how recent the whole Silicon Valley bank thing was. Yeah. You know, if you had sent me prep questions weeks ago that I had scripted out answers to, We probably never would have gotten on the subject of math versus drama versus you know all of these other topics. That you know we Uh just kind of followed the storyline where it led us today,
0: brother. You are an incredible intellectual sparring partner. You know, Mm -hmm. like you, you're you're like a wealth of knowledge, brother, and you're so intuitive, and I love it. I love it, man. And final question for you before we let you go, actually, I suppose, is when it comes to you as a person who's clearly always looking for knowledge to sharpen his game. Who do you look to as somebody who's an influential communicator?
1: So somebody that I've been turned on to lately, his name's David Senra. He runs the Founders Podcast. And what I find is, you should check it out if you haven't listened to it. What I find fascinating is, like me, he loves to learn. He reads through biographies of famous founders and entrepreneurs. And then he goes through and highlights on the podcast Favorite excerpts, what they mean to him. And then he basically hyperlinks those to other biographies and other places that he read something. And so if you listen to this podcast, it's literally just him talking, just his voice the entire time. No other effects, no other guests, nothing, just David's voice. And yet he is clearly like weirdly passionate about the stuff that he's reading. He is so good about weaving the same narrative through all of these different books to pull out certain themes or patterns. And each episode is like an hour and a half long. You know, they're pretty long episodes, but you just get sucked into it. And I think it's a very good test like if you were to put out some type of podcast where it was just your voice for an hour and a half mm-hmm. and there were mm-hmm. 200 plus episodes, would people try to devour all of those? That to me is a a highly influential and a highly skilled communicator.
0: Oh, I love that dude. I'm going to have to check out his work. And I think there's nothing better than witnessing somebody who is genuinely obsessed with what they do. It inspires you to get deeper in your obsession or find yours. So that's what I think, man. So, ladies and gents, if you have enjoyed this episode with Nate, here's exactly what I'd like you to do. All right. If you're listening on Spotify, if you're listening on Apple, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a screenshot of your phone at roughly 40 minutes in or wherever we are. And write a post. Hit us up on LinkedIn, tag Nate and myself, and let us know what's the one thing that you've really taken away from today's episode. And we will respond, people. We have no life, so we will (laughs) respond. I promise you that. All right, we will respond. So Nate, where can people go to learn more about you, what you're up to, the business, and all that good stuff?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, first you just said it, LinkedIn. Love to meet new people on LinkedIn. That's how we got connected. So first place, best place, second place. If you want to go deeper into more long form writing, I put all of that out on our blog,
0: fluent.io slash blog. And that's F-L-U-I-N-T.io slash blog. Ladies and gents, Nate Nasrallah. I'll see you very soon for another episode of the show. Peace. I have a question for you my friend and that question is is what would it take to have you subscribe to the influential communicator podcast and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice because i tell you what my friend my big mission is to help b2b sellers and all listeners of this show sell more by becoming influential storytellers and communicators without without suppressing their personality and disowning their value so hey the more the word gets out about this podcast the more people we can gather on this mission so if you could support me then hey that would be dope and if not that's dope too either way i got love for you all right i'll see you on the other side